This is an ABC podcast. Hello from Wurundjeri country, I'm Hilary Harper. I want you to imagine you can hear Dolly Parton belting out nine to five in the background because that's basically the opposite of what most Australians do these days. In a hustle and grind culture, we often accept that going beyond your hours is a sign of ambition or loyalty to your team. But perhaps we're at breaking point now. Resignations, quiet quitting, burnout and a battle in Parliament at the moment could reshape our concept of reasonable working hours. This is Life Matters. Teal Independent MP Monique Ryan is in mediation at the moment over an unfair dismissal dispute with her Chief of Staff, Sally Rugg. Rugg was sacked after refusing to work what she called unreasonable hours. What do reasonable hours look like? And what does it mean for our lives if we exceed them constantly? A new trial of a four-day week has shown some very good results in the UK. Eliza Littleton is a senior economist at the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work. Eliza, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Sugama Mariapananda is uh, sorry, Mariapananda is a research fellow in organisational psychology at ACU and an expert in sustainable HR. Dr. Mariapananda, that sounds very appropriate to our discussion today. Great to have you here. Thank you, Hilary. Eliza, I'll start with you. Do we really work too much today? How can we tell? Yeah, we absolutely do work too much at the moment. So uh, the Centre for Future Work released some uh, research last year that showed that on average uh, workers are putting in four hours and 20 minutes of unpaid overtime every week. So this is on top of all their scheduled hours and this can include things like answering the phone out of hours, staying late at work, coming in early, working through their lunch break um, and Uh, across the whole year, this means that we're working six weeks without additional pay. Um, And if we kind of extrapolate this across the whole workforce, uh, it adds up to about $92 billion in unpaid wages. So it's a really big issue, this issue of overtime, uh, particularly when it's unpaid overtime. Okay, so theoretically our working hours are okay. On, On paper they look fine, but it's the extra stuff that we have grown accustomed to that's that's the problem. Is that it? Yeah, and this affects uh, a lot of workers. So, yeah, we, of course, have our uh, 38 hours of maximum uh, weeks that are kind of protected, sorry, hours per week that are protected by our national employment standards. Uh, But, yes, of course, on top of that, lots of people uh, and lots of workers in Australia are doing additional hours and some of those hours are compensated and some aren't, but both have uh, issues and In the research that we did, we found that it's a really prevalent issue, actually. So seven in 10 Australian workers are performing overtime um, and almost half of these, so 44% of that 71% reported doing overtime often. So it is a big problem affecting lots of workers in Australia. Well, if you're listening to Eliza Littleton, how would you fix this? How would you change our culture of overwork and unpaid overtime? Eliza, just a a quick follow-up question. Where is that overwork concentrated? Is it in the sectors where workers have less power, whether it's precarious work or low-paid work or undervalued work, or is it more up the high-powered corporate end? So we found that it's uh, or unpaid overtime is distributed quite evenly throughout the whole economy. So there's a lot 
a majority of workers that are doing this, as, as I said, 71%. So it affects everyone everywhere. Um, of course, there are slight, uh, there are industries and occupations where we see a little bit more unpaid overtime um, and others where they're a little bit less. So, for example, uh, workers in goods produ producing industries like agriculture, mining, manufacturing, utilities, things like that, report um, more on average, more unpaid overtime, followed by workers in the private sector. We also see managers who are doing uh, more unpaid overtime, uh, professional workers, and um, also, sadly, people in the community and service worker sector. So, you know, there are some people in the higher, you know, in the in industries and occupations with, you know, a little bit more power who are doing unpaid overtime, but there's also workers who are in insecure work in low-paid industries that are doing unpaid overtime as well, and that's particularly problematic um, because that probably results from a, a lack of power in their work. Workplace. And is there a trend you can identify? Is it getting worse or better? Uh, yeah, it fluctuates uh, over time. So we've conducted this uh, survey for about 14 years now uh, and unpaid overtime has kind of fluctuated between about four hours and six hours a week um, every year. Uh, during the pandemic, it got particularly bad. So during 2020 and 2021, when a large portion of the workforce kind of went home and were working from home and uh, all working in kind of essential services where they were <laughs> required to do excessive hours, uh, particularly in healthcare and um, um, things like that. So it got definitely got worse. And I mean, I think there was a perceived um, kind of blurring of the line between home and work during those hours. So I think people did do more unpaid overtime and it certainly felt like we were doing more unpaid overtime. But it's an issue every year that we face. Indeed. Eliza Littleton is a senior economist at the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work. So they've been crunching the numbers for some time now on how much work we do in Australia. Dr. Suguma Mariapanada is a research fellow in organisational psychology at ACU. Suguma, what's happening here? How did we get to this situation where this culture of overwork is entrenched? Is it you know, literally bosses sitting up there cracking the whip or is it uh, something that we kind of have, have all developed? between us? I, I think um, it is both ways, employer as well as employee. Organizational psychology for the past 80 years have talked about how we can use human behavior in making you as a superhuman at work. So we believe now that we are superhumans and hence, we want to work more. And hence, the organization is using that as an opportunity to increase productivity. So it is a point of employees who believe that they are superhumans, as well as the organization which wants to improve their productivity. So in that context, sustainability, what it is trying to address is, it is indicating to us, a study by WHO, World Health Organization, found work kills more people than road accidents in developed countries. So that's the context, uh, Hillary. Wow. So what, what is that due to? Is that heart attacks or, or how is it killing people? Now, there are, uh, you know, a lot of research has gone into the biological 
indicators like uh, cardiovascular disease or increased blood pressure and all that. And we all know in Australia, there's a law that occupational health and safety is a legal and social responsibility of business directors, which simply means they are liable for employees' health and safety. Organizations have done extremely well with safety and they have reduced accidents in workplaces. But in terms of health and well-being, we are lagging behind a lot because we do not have leading indicators to find out when that heart attack is going to happen or when there's going to be a stroke. We don't have that sort of a lot of research has gone into it. And I have come up with an idea of work restriction. So that is a different way of finding out if you your work is restricting you to do what you want to to improve your positive health and well-being. Yeah, well that's that sounds like something that that uh, uh, common sense dictates would be easy to tell. Uh, I asked earlier for your calls on this, and on Facebook too, we asked uh, how have you addressed overwork at your workplace, or what has happened when it's become clear that there's an overwork issue at your workplace. I'd be very keen to hear those stories too. David's called in from Churnside Park in Melbourne. David, welcome to you. What's what have you seen? Hi, um, thanks for taking the call. Look, I was teaching for, for many years till I was 50 and um, one of the years I took a, a sample of my working time and I actually worked um, 54 weeks of that year with no overpaid overtime. So um, that, that made me slow down in my teaching. But it was very difficult because uh, I still wasn't able to give my, my family the time they needed. So I left teaching when I was 50 and I started my own landscaping and garden care business and I, I determined that I was not going to make my employees work over, over time. I think that you've got to have a work-life balance that's most important in life and if we ask our employees to work extra time, they must be paid for it and they, and they really must be able to have the option. So I, I think that increased productivity is fine but it has to be organised within the business and not take extra time from the employees. So um, it, I, I found that with my employees when I had um, the, the garden business, I gave them the option of working overtime and I paid them extra time and a half for overtime if they were able to work it. If we had a job to finish, we didn't work weekends and the only time I put in extra was to organise the business for the following week or the following months and still had time with my own family. So, so David, I'm just wondering, do you think that that would work now because so many uh, people expect to be able to book a landscaping business on a weekend now? Do you think your business would, would have survived if you were running it today? Oh, yes. Look, my, my business grew. I, I started it in 2000 and through I had the 10-year uh, the drought. And my business grew and grew so much during that time because I was um, trained in, in horticulture. My business grew and grew. And the people who weren't trained, um, they, they went by the by. My business grew. I had to take on extra, extra employees. I, and I said to people, I will not work weekends. That wasn't a problem. I still had work. I was knocking back work. When wow. I sold the business after 10 years, um, I had 
six months as a landscaping and 96 clients to hand over to the next person. So yes, it does work. You don't have to work weekends. Fantastic. So that model is sustainable. David, thanks so much for that perspective. Gia's in Hillgrove in the Yarra Valley, also in Victoria. Gia, hello. Oh, hello. Hello. How are you? Good. What's your perspective on the unreasonable Um, working hours? Yeah, look, I, I worked for children for many years as a representative of of members, of workers. Um, and um, I remember when I was working, representing members, and it just, just got to me. Uh, I remember when I was representing members in an arts institute uh, in Victoria uh, during negotiations for a new enterprise agreement. Um, the actual the staff wanted the reintroduction of timesheets um, because they were doing excessive hours, <coughs> and um, they knew that they were doing way more hours than what they were being paid for. Uh, but they didn't; they weren't able to actually prove it because management weren't accepting uh, what they were saying. Um, so during negotiations. They asked for it. We wanted a reintroduction of um, uh, timesheets again. And um, management flatly refused. They absolutely refused that, uh, saying that it would be it would restrict, be too restrictive. So that was pretty much the end of the story. Um, and look, it's, it's just a small thing that could actually stop the um, uh, this, these unrecorded hours. Yeah, that's really interesting, Gia. Thank you. Uh, the text popped in on that, I guess. Uh, many of us are made to sign contracts with, which state your working hours are 9 to 5.30 or whatever it may be, but you may be required to complete work beyond these hours when necessary. But these are not defined, says our texter. They're not paid. To change it and to improve management, we should be paid overtime. I did way too much overtime. They say, once I became a boss, I found it was better to send people home on time because it made it clearer to me what was doable in a day. So many texts coming in on this. This is something people obviously have a big stake in. Uh, M has texted in saying, I've recently been forced to retire as an aged care chef due to the detrimental health effects of years and years of unpaid overtime, ever-increasing workload and staff shortages. My health is now ruined in my retirement. Love to hear your thoughts today on Life Matters. We're taking talk back with our guest, Eliza Littleton, who is a senior economist at the Australia Institute Centre for Future Work, and Dr Sugumar Mar- Apanada, who's a research fellow in organisational psychology at ACU and an expert in sustainable HR. Uh, Eliza, what is the definition of unreasonable hours? I know we've got our 38 hours uh, a week on paper and then anything extra is overtime. Is there a working definition of what constitutes an unreasonable overtime load? Yeah, so the, the Fair Work Commission um, and our national employment standards uh, basically say that uh, an employer can re- request reasonable overtime. And then it, it goes on to kind of list some criteria of what is reasonable. So, you know, it says that overtime is reasonable if it doesn't risk the health and safety of workers or um, workers are given notice and compensation uh, and that it doesn't, say, interfere with their personal circumstances or their their personal sac- circumstances are considered. And the list goes on something some ways like that so they're quite vague the criteria and I think that that makes um, them really difficult to enforce uh, in a workplace and of course we have to also acknowledge that there's power dynamics going on in workplaces which um, mean that 
in a lot, lot of circumstances, workers can't really say no to their bosses when it comes to being required to do overtime. And a lot of the time that that overtime could be invisible as well and come about as a result of being overworked or having too much work going on. And it's really hard to kind of push back when you don't really feel like you have um, power in the workplace or um, anybody backing you up and that you're on your own. Suguma uh, Maria Panada, what's your thoughts on the idea of reasonable and unreasonable hours? I guess if we come from an organisational psychology perspective and a health and wellbeing perspective. Now, in that context, we talk about ceiling effect of human energy. Now, in organisational psychology, human energy is the fuel for work. Yes, we can work. 38 hours or 46 hours a week. But the point is, what is your human energy level? We all think we are human, we are superhuman, where our human energy is finite and we want to use more and more. So what I think in sustainability, the sustainable development goals, where they talk about decent work and indecent work, it is about human energy where your work depletes your natural energy, where it has to be replenished naturally, not having coffee or not having illicit drugs or alcohol, because there is so much of trend in workplace now for your human energy to be increase people go have coffee or have alcohol so that has become another side effect of what is depleting your energy so we explain the amount of work what an individual can do varies it depends on their human energy and you can feel it every employee can feel it and if employer can have that conversation with employees to find out the ceiling effect of human energy where it starts going down after that point. So that's going to be tricky, use, though, isn't you know, it? Particularly, like, just to interrupt for a minute, that's going to be a very difficult process in, say, a large organisation or even a small one where the the boss is is running a, a, a doing a lot of work themselves and running a tight ship. How do you have a conversation with everybody and work out their own individual tolerance for work? Don't we so need a, we, an overarching we, definition? We talk about pro-social relational job design. What it simply means is an employer designs job depending on the individual having a conversation with them about when they feel their human energy is depleted. It is having a conversation. By designing a job depending on that, there can be someone who's a super human and others who are normal majority of us are normal and by doing that we are having a conversation that will facilitate employees to give their discretionary work performance to improve productivity and increase profit for the organization Really interesting ideas being floated here today on Life Matters and we're taking your calls too about this idea of reasonable working hours, how we work out what they are, what happens when they're not in effect and what you can do about it. What has happened in a workplace where you've been at where it's clear that 
some of the working hours are unreasonable. How do you approach that? Many, many texts. I'll read you a couple. If everyone refused to do unpaid overtime, employers would have to renegotiate and change their exploitative business models. This one, very uh, sad to hear. I worked full-time in the entertainment industry prior to COVID. It was common to work in excess of 90 hours a week for several long periods a year. Up to 40% of my income would be from overtime. I also did about 500 hours unpaid overtime to get through the workload. Despite constant reports of fatigue issues, management refused to increase staff levels. I had to retire following a stroke. Love to hear how you have managed situations like that. I'm not saying it's up to you to manage those situations, but what happened in those situations when it's clear that that workload is unsustainable? Nicola has called in from Sydney. Nicola, hello. Hi, good morning. What would you like to add? Well, I think the, the conversation started with the comment that it's eight, eight and eight. And I think we actually have to disabuse everyone of that notion. That's a furphy. We do not have eight hours of recreation. Research clearly shows, and I should have said I am doctor in health, um, but it's a furphy. We have less recreational time than we ever had before. And our energy absolutely is precious and our energy is not just used productivity to make someone else um, money we have to drive maybe four hours to work we have to look after children now we understand economically that children are the greatest contribution that for our economy and country the next generation where is our priority in all those other important aspects carers looking after families being social human beings that has to be reconciled in this conversation because those are the factors that keep us healthy as well. And so it's not just about our energy for productivity, it's actually our energy to care for ourselves and, and be human, which is my last point. Humans are being commodified by business and employers. And I think we have to say, excuse me, we have to stop talking about even workers as a way of just passionately referring to people. You could be talking about cogs in a machine. We are talking about human beings. And if we lose sight of that and the respect of each other as human beings and value everybody's energy, then I think we may as well just, you know, I think we're going down the slippery slope where humans become machines. And we need, I think this conversation is actually bigger than it is. And I think we need to address how we value and respect humans. And it sounds like, Nicola, you'd like to see a lot more unpaid labour valued uh, more and, and valued differently as well. Well, significantly. We know that the quiet economy of people caring and volunteering provides billions of dollars to the economy and that also includes obviously the overtime but um, you know we don't value as I said we don't value parenting and childcare and those things and we know that's the most important investment we can make in society so if we value children we need to be saying actually you know for people who choose to have children it can't be eight eight and eight which as I said is a furphy it needs to be okay parenting is a job in itself raising a child is a job in itself and we need to value all aspects of human life, not just the productivity that makes someone else have a profit. Yes, indeed. Nicola, thanks for your time. I did read a figure recently that suggested I think Australians have about 14.4 hours away from work. So that's everything else, sleep, recreation, all the other things that you like to squeeze into your life, maybe a hobby or something. 14.4 hours, not very much, is it? Peter's pulled over to chat to us. Thanks for that, Peter. You're in Melbourne and you're an employer. What are your thoughts on this discussion? Well, it's all very good and it's, it's quite correct, but there's one thing that I notice no one talks about, and that is how much time staff waste 
uh, on personal phone calls, on paying their bills on company computers, on uh, conversations at the at the at the coffees in the kitchen uh, about personal matters, and it adds up to an enormous amount of money. And uh, I'm not complaining about it, but I'm just saying that we're always hearing about the employees. You know, like if they if they spend uh, ten minutes a day um, or ten minutes of time. Uh, half a dozen times a day, it adds up to 100 hours a year, 150 hours a year that the employer is just expected to absorb. And we do, and we do. In fact, we've gone back to my particular company. I've gone back to four days a week at the same pay. And, but then, you know, you never hear praise for the employers. It's always about the employee wants more, 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 and they don't realise how much they're stealing from the boss and in fact if I reduced their wages and said well you were talking on the phone for an hour the other day because um, you wanted to buy a new motorbike so I'm paying you an hour less they'd be screaming but we're just accept- expected to absorb it. So Peter is, I, is there, I just wondered if people are maybe shifting some of that home time into work because there's some of their work time has been shifted into home do you think that's something that might be occurring? Well, my staff don't uh, uh, don't do any work after hours. So they don't take phone calls. They don't check you. emails. No, no. Good stuff. No, they used to, but they don't anymore. Over a period of most of my staff been there a long time. They, you know, uh, if you want to ring them about a personal matter, even they very rarely answer the phone on the weekend. Peter, I'm no, really no, intrigued no, that you... I'd love to chat to you a bit more, Peter, about this four-day week. Are you saying that you, you're trialling a four-day week at your workplace for all your, your employees, but on a five-day pay? Yep. How's it going? Yep. Going really good. Everyone's it's happy? going really good, actually. I, get, I think I get a, pretty close to the same productivity. And it sounds and like the, the it, it's nice. Happier. Yeah. And, we did, we did have, we were uh, busy a while ago. I said to them, do you want to go to five days? I said, no, no, we're happy on four. So, okay. Fantastic. All right. Well, Peter, that's really great to hear. Thank you. We're going to feed that back to our guests. Thanks for your perspective today. But, but the thing is that all employers are focused on the employees and we do get offended with this continual badgering of the employer and we don't get enough credit. And it's all about the employees and the employees and the employees. And frankly, it, in the end, it wears, you da- wears an employer down, I can assure you. And there won't be that much employment in this country, certainly not manufacturing in the area that I'm in. Well, I'm glad that we've got your perspective on today, Peter. Thanks for your time. Another text on that from Tony. I think nominal longer working hours might reflect increased unrecognised private activity at work and flexibility allowed for family duties at the beginning and end of the day. That's Tony's view on text. Let's have a little chat about that four-day week since we're here. Eliza Littleton from the Australia Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work. There's a big push now for the four-day work week on the five days of pay after another successful trial in the UK. Do you think a four-day work week would help with the overwork problem in Australia or would people just try and squash all that five days into four? Yeah, so, uh, you know, there are a lot of benefits that we could derive from implementing a shorter uh, working week.
week or a four-day working week where, for example, there's obviously lots of models and how on how you can do it, um, but we advocate for like a, a 32-hour standard working week in four days um, with no loss of pay. And I think there are benefits for addressing this issue of overtime. Uh, so, for example, um, there's a persistent problem in Australia with kind of this maldistribution of working hours. So on, on one side of the scale, and this is what we're talking a lot about, is um, overtime and how, how many workers are doing overtime uh, and how often they're doing it. But at the other end of the spectrum, we also have really high rates of underemployment. So, you know, we have some workers in the economy who are doing too much work or um, and then other workers who are doing not enough work. So moving to a shorter working hours um, has the potential to help rebalance this poor distribution of work. And really, at the end of the day, the labour market is is also for workers um, and uh, the economy is for for um, workers as well and for people. So this would this would really benefit um, everybody. Uh, and as he said, from a lot of these trials, we see that productivity doesn't uh, decrease. It actually increases because uh, people you know, have a sense of like purpose when they get there at work, that they have their their workload and they they are um, uh, more folks are getting that work done during that time. And then, for example, their their appointments and things like that, um, they can all get shifted to that that day that would otherwise have been a work day under other circumstances. When but, yeah, there are a lot of benefits. It was interesting to hear Peter saying, you know, he works in manufacturing and it's working well for him. Does it work for all fields, though? I mean, I'm thinking about retail or hospitality. It'd be a bit tricky where you've. it's not about the productivity on your shift, it's about turning up for that time, isn't it? Yeah, uh, but and and that's for sure true that it would have to be implemented differently for different types of workers and different types of industries and different occupations. It's not going to look the same for everyone, uh, but it certainly can be beneficial not um, in, in kind of all areas of work because, yeah, our, our worker has more time for leisure and rest, which means they're a bit more energised and um, I mean, I'm sure Sugumar can talk a bit about the benefits of of not working overtime or not being ex, uh, pushed to the limit, um, and how much better you would be at working in the hours that you are assigned. But it also has a a, a, um, a role to play in you know increasing real wages in the economy as well. So you know we know that uh, productivity growth has outstripped real wages, which means that workers already are producing a lot more kind of goods and services, the same level of inputs, but um, the additional value is not being generated, oh, it's not being kind of distributed to them in the form of, of higher wages. So this is, this shorter working week is a way to kind of get workers back their share of the value they're creating and putting into the economy. So lots of benefits and the trials show great results. I guess a question for you, Sugama Maria Bernardo, then is, is there an incentive for businesses to trial a four-day week given that they're already benefiting from the productivity increases? Do you think that there are many businesses who might take that on and, uh, as an attempt to, to boost everyone's well-being? I think it is it is an appropriate approach. And going back to what Peter was talking about, we call it as presenteeism, where people come to work and don't be actively engaged in productivity because of health reasons or because of the tension, what they are going through. So the approach, what we are talking about, 
reduce number of days that is having four day a week it's all about giving opportunity to engage in your leisure activities family activities and things like that but we have a different perspective which organization can use it to maximize profit as well as take human sustainability as their corporate social responsibility is helping employees disengage from work now this is the problem what we are having hillary now that employees are not disengaging from work whether it is 5 days work or 4 days work it is about disengaging from work now you have technology where your work email you get a notification you immediately want to open up and people keep their mobile phone next to their bedside and in the night it beeps people wake up and check what it is it is creating more of you know health issues because less and less people are disengaging from work so organization has a responsibility to do that because it reduces presenteeism which cost Australian business thirty billion dollars. Wow, that's that's a big amount. Eliza Littleton, would a would a legally enshrined right to disconnect in Australia, as as happens in some sectors already, help with that, or, or is it about kind of us making a choice? Yeah, I think a right to disconnect um, implemented, say, in our national employment standards, would actually be a really good way to protect. Uh, and guarantee uh, workers' right to unplug from work. Uh, as Sukumar was saying, I mean, we all know uh, the experience of um, answering our phone on the weekend, taking calls outside of hours, looking at our emails, um, you know, Skyping on our kitchen table um, because of, of uh different time zone differences and things like that and this all really encroaches on our our personal time and our non-work time um and it means that yeah we can't we can't let go of work um we don't have that proper separation and so it almost feels like sometimes we're always at work um and this is a really big problem so the right to disconnect um actually uh there's a lot of support for that in in the Australian community i think that that's um a recognition of the fact that communication technology has really infiltrated our lives and made work something can that can reach in so Uh yeah we found that 84% of Australian workers would support the government legislating a right to disconnect in Australia to help protect um the the balance that we should have between work and leisure. We've had a response to our caller Peter before who uh was worried that employees were using too much work time to do their personal things. Why is the assumption that most employees try to bludge says this text from Lisa when the reality is that most of us care about doing a good job and take pride in doing so. It's It's about time that was recognised seriously and stopped the undermining of most of us. It is demoralising. Let's take a few more calls because lots of people want to join us on this discussion with our guest today, Eliza Littleton from the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work and Dr Sugama Mariapanada, Research Fellow in Organisational Psychology at ACU. Jason has called in from Moorlebark in Melbourne. Welcome to you, Jason. What do you Good. think about this? Well, I have a story. I do not... have any overtime i always finish my work on time and i do well and what i do and i know others who do but i won't mention names because who do work overtime that is but i think dr monada is very right 
in how we need to businesses need to um, be take care of the mental health of the employees. To the gentleman who spoke regarding his criticizing employees, he should really temper his criticism and consider what he's saying carefully and remember a quiet answer takes away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. That is a proverb. That's true. Well, Jason, thank you for your call. Have, Bye a, good now. Have a good day. Jason calls in sometimes from Moorabark. Thank you for your call today. Chris in Sunshine, welcome to you. Now, you're an employer too. Uh, how does it work at your place? Um, well, first and foremost, my business is nothing without the employees. If I haven't got good employees, I have nothing. So I want to treat them well. And they tell me what hours they want to work. I've got one guy, I'm in building. Mm-hmm. I've got one guy that starts at seven. He works till one. But every day he's there, Monday to Friday, and he's there. And that's the day, hours he wants to work, and that's fine. I work my business around that. I have a rule that I don't want people to work weekends. Even though I, haven't, I now have one guy who wants to work a Saturday, and that's fine. That's what he wants to do. I'm, I, I prefer him not to because I want him, I think family time is that important. Um, but they're most important, first and foremost, without good workers, I have nothing. Well, Chris, everyone in the office wants to work for you now. I'm getting these little messages going, can we work with Chris? But how does it work? I mean, if you're running a building site and you've got someone there from 7 to 1 and someone else doesn't want to be there until 10 till whatever, is that going to work for your clients? It, it, well, it does. Um, it, it does, actually. I, I make sure that it does work. I, can, I talk with the clients. I talk with the site managers so they know what's happening as well. And if they want this person to roll up at, uh, they want a seven o'clock start, and I have someone who wants to start at 10, and I have, I have one guy who wants like starting at 10 o'clock, um, I just move him to a different site and say, no, you're working at this site. Uh, this, this, on this site, they want people from seven till three. So great, I'll, I'll move the people there. Um, but the other ones, they'll say, look, as long as you do the work, that's fine. And I'll go ahead and make sure I have the right person on the right site. That, that's my job, to make sure I manage it. So, yeah, I'm glad it's working. It sounds like you've got an economy of scale going on there, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Great to hear from you. Jane's in Tasmania. And, Jane, you're a, you were a teacher. Tell us how work overwork has featured in your career. Oh, well, yes. <laughs> Thanks very much for taking the call. Um, yeah, look, I, um, I'm 64 now, and I, I had imagined myself um, keeping going to work to about 67. That seemed like a good idea because um, there was so much I loved about my job. Um, but what I've found over, you know, this fairly long period of, you know, 30-odd years um, is that it, it strikes me that the most important and, um, you know, really critical things are the things that we now have to squeeze in. There's some kind of an assumption that we'll do them anyway. Um, and, um, and some of the most exciting and fabulous and wonderful things that it was possible to do were further back in the past because um, there was more time. And um, what we've got, obviously, in the modern world is, you know, all the data entry, all the um, IT stuff, all the learning of new systems, all the endless recording of detailed data um, and, and so on. But what I found helpful was um, at some point or another over the years that the question struck me, what matters? Question mark. And I had that on a piece of paper, which would sometimes be on my wall and sometimes be in a messy pile and it would resurface and I'd pull it out and I'd look at it. Um, and that was the question, what matters? And what I believe the problem we've got into is partly related to 
perhaps because of politicians wanting deliverables and reportable numbers, um, which obviously in the human areas of teaching and healthcare and so on, it, it's not going to come down to very easy numbers always. Um, I think we have um, a, a lot of bureaucrats devising checklists and tick boxes and so-called quality assurance measures, but by character and by personality and by work choice and so on, I would submit that they don't really know what matters. So you won't get anyone coming into a class to see, are all the kids engaged? Are, are, they, are they, you know, fully engaged with their learning? Are their faces shining? Are their eyes bright? Are they asking brilliant questions? Are they getting their questions answered? Does it look like their confidence is being built? Is their belief in themselves being built? Are exciting current new ideas being discussed? No one is going to assess that. Quality assurance will not recognize that as quality. There'll be a sort of hope that that will somehow still happen. Mm, that's a really good so, point, Jane. I think I might get a badge made up with what matters, question mark on it, and uh, hand them out to all my friends and relations as well. A couple of quick texts on that topic of uh, how much work time people do at home and home things people do at work. My business sells gift certificates. 80% come from work email addresses Monday to Friday after people have been searching for gift ideas at work. I wonder how many of them are work-related gifts. A lot of retirements going on and resignations. And another says we don't have enough public holidays and they're almost all in the first six months. That's from Michael in South Australia. We need at least one long weekend a month. Also stop the avalanche of bleep admin. Quite a few texts on that. One says there's a novel from 1915 called Herland and <laughs> it describes a women-only workplace where work can be completed in a five-hour day due to the lack of meetings and cigar breaks. Thank you to Margaret for that text. Let's take a call from Liz uh, in Wagga. Liz, you're a locum GP. How does that go for you? Well, I'm also a freelance. I'm not employed by somebody who gives me a certain number of hours off or weeks off, and I really pity those people because I can take a lot longer if I want, but also feel obligated when you hear the desperate cries of one Dr. Towns in the distance, uh, can't go back to overseas, dad's dying or something, you know. They just can't get enough locums, and they don't see the locum craft group as a group that has its own needs or its own pressures. Uh, You know, you turn up... Every patient's brand new. You don't know a thing about them. Whereas the regular doctor just has that immediate knowledge. So you take time doing that. And you have, I have an, I really like to explain things to the patients a little bit. I don't want to take too long, but I might flick something onto the internet. They can take a photo of what it is. Um, I might tell them what a gallbladder operation is. Uh, you know, just the things that really put their minds at rest. And they say, oh, nobody's ever explained it. So oh, I take longer, but that's a pressure on me. And then, it, of course, it holds us up pretty late. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it, when you want to do a good job, not just get the job done. And that can take a bit of extra time. Liz, thanks so much for your call. It's a really useful perspective to have. There's a couple of really important questions I want to ask our guests before we wind up on Life Matters today. Eliza Littleton, we've been seeing in the news the mediation between uh, Teal MP Monique Ryan and her Chief of Staff Sally Rugg about this wrangle over what is reasonable working hours. Do you think that's going to have an impact on our expectations around work hours as it plays out? 
I certainly hope so. Um, yeah, I mean, there aren't a lot of details about this case come out yet. And of course, it's still, you know, working through um, uh, for them. But it does really draw our attention to this kind of uh, ubiquitous issue of overtime. And I think it gets people to reflect on the fact that they're doing overtime and maybe they've normalised that and that that might be a problem. Um, it also draws attention to the fact that, yeah, it is really difficult to define what is reasonable and maybe that there is a problem with our existing laws regulating over time because they're hard to define, hard to enforce. Um, and, you know, I, I really don't think at the end of the day it is up to individuals to, to resolve this problem. I think we need, um, you know, uh, employment, we need uh, better employment standards to make sure that um, workers as a group can access this right um, more easily and have it be more enforceable in their workplaces so they don't have to individually stand up to their workplace culture or the expectations of their managers um, and say, you know, I have too much work. And Dr. Sugama Mariapanada, you were talking before about how it's in uh, the interests of the business to support employee well-being and make sure people's working hours are reasonable and they can have that balance between the other things they need in their life as well as their productivity. How could organisations change to, to do that or how could government regulate this better? What kind of mix of things do we need to make a change? I think um, if you look at... Uh uh, Monique and uh, Sally's case, what I like about that is this has brought up human sustainability from decent work perspective. If there is anything on climate change, you would see lots of people on the street protesting. Whereas for human sustainability from decent work perspective, this has enlightened or become a trigger point for employers as well as for our politician to do something about this. So the best thing I would look upon is decent work based on understanding employees, you know, what they want to do with their life, as well as with work. So it is not about work-life balance I'm talking about, understanding each aspect because today the spillover effect of work with family and work, family to work is constant. We cannot stop it. We have to become inclusive and understand from a sustainability perspective where UN has clearly indicated decent work is what organization to, should and must take in consideration and if politicians can take that and bring in legislative requirement for that and corporate social responsibility for businesses too, it will all happen for the benefit of employer as well as employees. I want to take a super quick call from Kathleen. She dropped off the line and we just got her back. Kathleen, welcome from Tasmania. Tell us about this particularly egregious example that you came across. Oh, I was working in Sydney. I'm sorry, I'm a bit husky. I've got a sore throat. Um, I was working in Sydney and went to a barbecue one late in the evening and met a young man who was working at one of our larger hardware companies in Australia, an Australian-wide company. He was an IT specialist. He worked seven days a week, every week, without holidays, because... And I said, you can't do that. You live in Australia. And he said, oh, no, I signed my contract overseas. Therefore, I don't get Australian working conditions. <laughs> and I said, you're in Australia. You must get Australian working conditions. 
I don't know who one would complain to. That is we a really interesting have point. We Department of Labour and Industry, but we don't have anyone. So, Even if we do legislate for things, how do we enforce them? Well, I would go to the Fair Work Commission, but Eliza Littleton, would that be your first port of call? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, union membership is also a really important um, way to kind of uh, get collective bargaining power in a workplace as well. Um, But yes, of course, there are those public institutions like the Fair Work Commission. Eliza Littleton, Dr. Sugamur Mariapanada, thanks both so much for joining us on Life Matters today. Thanks Thank so much, Eliza is a senior economist at the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work. And Dr. Sugama Mariapanada is a research fellow of organisational psychology at ACU and an expert in sustainable HR. There are a lot of texts coming in about reasonable and unreasonable working hours. Here's one from Paul, who's self-employed in Kew in Melbourne. Flexible hours are compensated with high pay. If you want to work specific hours, then pack shelves or work in a factory for $20 an hour. Don't blame other people or other factors for your choices at work. Jan says perhaps your previous caller, Peter, who uh, was a manufacturing employer, could alter his perspective and consider the five minutes his employees spend chatting as they make coffee as a valuable piece of team building. All the most successful organisations I've worked for had strong relationships within their workplaces. This text, we used to take great pride in working all the paid overtime we could in order to save up for a house deposit or a car, etc. How can anyone get ahead without this ability? And D in Melbourne says, just don't award employee of the month to the person who's doing loads of unpaid overtime. I was not a big winner of sporting trophies as a child, though I did score the most improved beginner trophy at Highland Dancing once. and I couldn't believe I had to give it back the next year. John Shields, on the other hand, was very good at swimming. Here's the story of his precious object for Life in 500 Words. For a short space, it sat in my mother's mirror-back crystal cabinet, looking a tad misplaced among the fine china and crystal wares. An ornate sugar bowl, bechromed on the exterior, gilded within, complete with decorative handle, with discreet attachment from which to suspend a matching sugar spoon. Engraved on the plated exterior was the name of yours truly, along with details of a late sporting triumph. A sugar bowl masquerading as a trophy, or a trophy masquerading as a sugar bowl? For me, such niceties mattered little, for it was my prized possession. I'd been a chubby kid, and childhood sporting accolades were the lot of my kid sister. Then on the cusp of my teens, I learned how to swim. I took to the notatory arts with alacrity, and was chuffed on later securing a bronze medallion competing over 400 metres freestyle at district championship level. Even the latter seemed but a trinket of sorts, come the advent of the sugar bowl under review. It had happened that the neighbouring Bensdale Swimming Club had elected to open its annual one-mile Mitchell River Swim to all comers. I'd fancied my chances. Early on the day of the event, I hitchhiked to Bensdale, 60-odd miles in the old measure. The host club chose to play it safe when it came to outsiders. I was allocated the scratch mark in what was billed a handicap event, 
Still, it was unlikely organisers fancied I'd prove the proverbial smoky in the lineup. I blitzed the field and won the race convincingly. Then, job done, hitchhiked on home. Our local swim club president, intrigued by my exploits, later arranged for a brief para referencing same to appear modestly tucked away in the columns of the local paper. But real satisfaction came with the arrival of that prized winner's trophy, forwarded post-event and appropriately engraved in my honour. Blame what follows on the vibe of the times. Come the first of a series of shared house appointments spread over the late 70s and beyond, I took possession of my prize. It left the rarefied confines of my mother's crystal cabinet. Taking my lead from Le Cabousier, form follows function, my trophy went on to grace our sharehouse dining table for a time, fulfilling an unassuming role as a humble sugar bowl. A constant and reassuring tabletop reminder of my sporting exploits. Meantime, coincidentally, I'd secured summer employment as attendant in charge of the local public swimming pool. Alas, I'd not counted on the peccadilloes of gunja-smoking housemates high on hooch with fortified stashes of prime gear secreted about the premises. Come that fateful day, I arrived home from work to discover how housemate, I call him out right now, even though he lately departed this world unseemly soon, Charlie Farley had in his cruel fancy divine valuated benefits in converting my prize trophy to a custom-made mold bowl to mend his premium spiff. Charlie Farley. He'd wrenched the decorative handle from a victor's bowl, discarded the sugar spoon, then somehow bent the bowl rim down to form a rounded edge, a la old-style dessert bowl. What could a forlorn trophy owner do? Aside from feeling mightily peed off, the damage was already done. Evidence of a past triumph sadly and irredeemably mangled. It was difficult, but obligatory, or perhaps given 70s zeitgeist, Buddhist, to adopt a philosophical stance, leaving bygones be bygones. It did not occur to me at the time to seize the damaged goods. Even years on, when the said perpetrator fancy he harboured that sad remnant somewhere among his sundry possessions, I was still too tardy to assert rights of repossession. All that remains is this story. A story, a story. Let it come, let it go. If it be sweet or not so sweet, save some for yourself, share some with a friend, and let some come back to me. John Shields there with sound engineering on that beautiful story by Carrie Dell. That's it for Life Matters at the moment, but lots of people are talking about your super right now, following the treasurer Jim Chalmers flagging a couple of potential changes. One of those is to define in legislation the purpose of superannuation. And that raises the question, what is our superannuation for? We'll dive into those philosophical and economic questions on our next episode. I'll catch you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.